This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. Right, welcome back to another episode of Transparency, everyone. We are fortunately joined today by uh, Helena uh, Lacroix. Not Lacroix. What's the What's your Twitter mm-hmm. handle? Something like it that. It is. It is Something pronounced Lacroix. Lacroix. <laughs> um, it's a stupid story. So basically, I was in college. People wanted me to make a Twitter. I didn't think I was going to use it, and I was drinking a Lacroix. So I. I just made it LaCroix. LaCroix was taken as a username. So I just put like a a bejumblement of letters at the end of it. And then now I just have a lot of followers and haven't changed it. So <laughs> excellent. <laughs> However, I'm not drinking a LaCroix right now. I'm drinking a Waterloo. So Ooh. not living up to my name. <laughs> I'm drinking a Shasta Club soda. So not even <laughs> nearly as classy. Yeah, I just uh, got a hot chocolate. I'm just kind of... <laughs> Settle in here. <laughs> <laughs> Break the mold. Um, yeah. yeah, so we are hoping to talk about uh, kind of the, the cultural aspect of transgenderism or transgender ideology uh, and more like the, the social justice um, gender, like the kind of what we, what we commonly know in academic circles as like queer theory, but as it's ap- applied in more like online youth realms, uh, more commonly known as basically like social justice theory or a social justice framework. Um, and, and how that's probably the primary driver in so much youth transition today, or even 20-something transition today. And uh, Helena knows that stuff inside and out, so she has joined us to shed, shed light. So thank you very much. Yeah. Do you want to introduce yourself for the people who don't know you, which I doubt is anybody, <laughs> but you, yeah, introduce yourself. Well, if anyone has not seen me rabidly go off on the timeline yet, um, I'm a detransitioned woman. I'm 23 and I started identifying as trans when I was 15 um, after getting very involved in like Tumblr uh, fandoms. Um, And with that came obviously the social justice stuff, which I believe played um, just a huge, huge part in my trans identity um, and eventual decision to transition. When I was 18, I went on testosterone and I was on testosterone for about 17 months before I desisted. And after I desisted, I kind of identified as non-binary for a few months. And then eventually I just said, um, I'm a girl. So yeah, that's the short story. That's the short version of my story. It seems like for a lot of people, the non-binary identity is either kind of like sometimes an on-ramp or an off-ramp from mm-hmm. um, from full-on trans identification. So. Yeah, and I think like, I know we'll definitely get into this more, but I think the reason for that is because when you're immersed in these social justice spaces, like that's a very um, strict, almost like moral code um, mm-hmm. with your peers that basically says that 
if you are privileged, then you're responsible for all of this pain and suffering and wrongdoing in the world. And for someone like me, who at the time was a cis, straight, white girl from like a middle, upper middle class upbringing, um, I felt a lot of guilt about all of this privilege that I had. Um, and obviously you can't change your race. You can't change your sexuality. You can't change where your family comes from. But one thing that you can change is your pronouns. So it's really easy for girls who are in the situation or boys too. I, I think especially boys um, who are young, they don't, they're not socially like adept and they're faced with this very strict kind of unforgiving uh, moral framework. It's so easy to just, to say, you know, I'm going to try going by they, them pronouns. And then you get this kind of like positive feed feedback loop. So we'll probably talk more about that, but that's my opinion on, on that. Well, we can even like just talk about it now, even as like what, what I've noticed uh, or like slowly over the last few years kind of clued into is it's almost like if you don't choose to identify as non-binary, it's almost like you're actively choosing to be an oppressor, like to participate in, in these oppressive structures where you're, you're on an upper ledge. And it's almost like there's, um, it's so much farther beyond peer pressure than like that you you feel compelled to adapt a trans identification in some way. Um, and like you're saying, this is often like people in your kind of demographic range, white people, typically uh, middle or, or, or upper class, um, it, where you like have this this kind of this guilt and this lack of of kind of a, a, an existing cultural kind of community to identify yourself with. And so so it has this this two twofold appeal is that it, it comes with this kind of sense of you know personal differentiation and a community to belong to as well as getting you out of the oppressive class you exist mm -hmm. in if you're cis and straight so no yeah exactly and i think like teenagers are already in a state where they're so um vulnerable to um, re social rejection. And so when you've already been rejected a lot of the times just for being more introverted or more nerdy or having autism or being gay, anything like that, when you've already kind of been rejected from your in real life social circles, um, whether that's your community or your school, um, and then you seek refuge from that in these online spaces. And then you're hit with, once again, we will reject you unless you change this or, or unless you fit into this, um, some kind of oppressed group in some way. Um, not that it's explicit, but it's very much like, you know, the cis straight white people are the ones who are constantly the butts of very negative jokes. You'll get told like, you have no right to speak on this. You have no right to be depressed or struggle with anything because you're so privileged. Um, and so, I mean, I think that's an incredible incentive. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of, yeah, a lot of, a lot of cultural forces and, and incentives to, yeah. to adapting it. And then it seems like, and I'm not, I don't think this was your experience as far as like when you started testosterone, but something that I've seen that seems to be the case in, in a lot of these, that kind of understanding is that transition is almost seen as something that you do to demonstrate how committed you are to the, 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 the trans moral code. It's not so much like you need, you feel like there's a, a you know, a, a problem with your body that you need to fix, but more like you, um, but by transitioning, it's like you're, you're demonstrating, you know, a commitment to this moral code. Is that something that you saw? 
Um, I, I do relate to that. And I think that you can have, it doesn't have to be mutually exclusive with right. having body image issues. I think that, I mean, it's kind of like eating disorders, you know, where it's like someone with an eating disorder is going to have genuine, like uh, torturous angst over their body and disliking their body. But at the same time, it, there's also like the socially contagious communal aspect where it's like, you want to be the mm-hmm. sickest, you want to be going the furthest, you want to be showing your commitment. So I think that does exist almost in like a direct parallel in some of these young FTM or non-binary circles. We talked about the on-ramp and I just wonder if you could kind of walk us through a little bit about what that on-ramp looked like for you. Like how old were you and where did you first encounter some of those ideas? Yeah. Um, So I was 15 and to give a little bit of context. So when I was in middle school, I had like a decent little circle of friends. I wasn't like a total social outcast. Um, But then sometime around eighth grade and then into ninth grade, I, I just there wasn't a huge falling out or anything with anybody. But my friendships just seemed to kind of like drift away. I really felt like I couldn't keep up with the changing like social relational complexity that my peers were going through, like starting to enter relationships, starting to use social media and kind of with young girls, there's, there's like, there's a lot of just competition on a very subtle social level that I just was not keeping up with. Um, So I became really isolated. And in my ninth grade year, my freshman year of high school, I became super isolated. I just stopped going to school. Um, My mom let me stay home from school because I was just so depressed. I was self-harming all the time. I was like really alone. Um, And I started using Tumblr. And I found Tumblr during this part of my life. It was really the summer before my freshman year of high school. Um, I I found Tumblr because I was really interested in like classic rock artists Um, which there was no one else, no other girls that I knew who were interested in that. Um, And just, I was looking on the internet one day and then I just found this website where it would be like the, the, you know, hashtag insert band name. Like it would be like the hashtag, you know, Led Zeppelin or hashtag the Beatles or hashtag Elvis. And I could just scroll endlessly and just see like all this stuff coming out. So I was like, wow, oh my God. And so that was like immediately uh, really called to me. And so I just pretty much from the get-go started using Tumblr a lot, hours and hours and hours a day. And anyone who's been on Tumblr knows that pretty much as soon as you get involved in any kind of community, you see like the social justice kind of posts popping up. So in between everything you have with whatever you're interested in, your fandom, you'll see posts just all over the place talking about social justice stuff all the time. And a lot of the times it's very like emotionally charged, you know, it's not just, you know, some kind of educational post. It's like, you know, like, white people need to shut up. I don't want to like, you know, like just really emotionally charged stuff. And so, yeah, I remember seeing this kind of stuff. And at first I had one friend in real life at this point, and he was a gay boy using Tumblr as well. And I remember we would be like calling each other late at night and making fun of like these social justice warriors. Um, cause we just thought it was kind of ridiculous. 
And then I had a falling out with that friend and we kind of stopped talking. So then I was just left to Tumblr. And I remember just always having this kind of like deep resentment of like, why are you talking such shit about cis people? Like what's wrong with being cis? Like what's wrong with not wanting to transition or be trans or think I'm a boy? There's nothing weird about that. Like I had this intense resentment of that. But over time, that resentment, I guess, turned into like, okay, fine. I guess I need to not be cis. Like a subconscious process. This wasn't like a decision to like, I'm not going to be cis anymore. But I think it was a subconscious process of just giving in and being like, look, I don't want to feel this resentment. I don't want to feel like I'm constantly the butt of every joke. I don't want to feel like I'm constantly walking on eggshells because if I say anything, a billion people are going to come at me because I'm cis and I have no right to talk. Um, so I just kind of, I remember there was a few days where I kind of mulled over it. And then I was like, you know what? Maybe they, them pronouns do feel better than she, her pronouns. I've never felt connected to being a girl anyway. What does that even mean? Um, so yeah, I, I made my little post being like, I'm just trying out they, them pronouns to see how it feels. And then obviously immediately everyone was like, oh, that's so awesome. That's great. We'll call you they, them. We accept you, blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, cool. And it just kind of kept going from there where I would like acclimate to the they, them pronouns, not doing any of this in real life. This was all on Tumblr. But then again, my mind was all on Tumblr too. I wasn't really connecting with the outside world at all. Um, I would acclimate to the they, them pronouns. And then I would be like, okay, well, you know what? I think I'm actually a demi girl. That's my gender identity. And then I would kind of acclimate to that. People would be like, yay, so proud of you. And then I would say, you know what? Maybe I'm a gender. And then people would be like, yay, yay, congratulations. And then I would acclimate to that. And then I'd be like, well, maybe my pronouns are Zzer. I remember I used that at one point. Um, and again, everybody is like, super happy about it. And yeah, it's just, um, it went, it took me from feeling like, oh, well, I've been rejected in real life and now I'm getting rejected again. And I'm really angry about it. And, but I don't feel, I don't have the confidence to just continue being myself. So I'm going to change myself. And then when I changed myself, there was all of this social reward. That's, that's the people point that I was that I was picking up on in your story, right, is every time you announced a change in identity, you were getting the, the reward of the approval and, and the support. And, and it makes me wonder, like, I mean, that really reinforces a constant changing of identity. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I could see a person getting, especially if, if a person is really isolated, this, you know, every, if every time you change your identity, you're getting that kind of hit of, of that reward, it it does seem to, it, I mean, it makes sense to me anyway, that that would lend itself to people kind of experimenting with a lot of different identities and constantly shifting identity. Yeah. And, and, and another thing is that obviously when you're first learning about all this gender identity pronoun stuff, it seems like this massive world of like stuff that you've never considered. And so I think that when in your real life, you feel like people don't accept you. But then on in this alternate reality of Tumblr, you feel like people accepted you for they, them. You start to think like, could I push this further? Like, could I test to see how much people accept me based on how you know intricate my pronouns and gender 
become. Like I know, I'm sure you guys have seen this kind of online where it's like people write in their bios or in their card or whatever. They'll be like, my pronouns change depending on blah, 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 blah. And my gender identity is different depending on blah, blah, blah. I'm a girl during the full moon and I am an androgene, a gender, blah, 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 during when it rains. Like people kind of do that. And I think that that at least for me, because I didn't go that far, but I did kind of, you know, I used the Zezer pronouns and like stuff like that. I think that it's kind of like you're feeling like acceptance for the first time and you know that it's conditional, but you're like, you're so hungry for that feeling of acceptance that you kind of keep changing things and making them more complicated and kind of like digging the hole even further to test if people will continue accepting you. And they always do because it's not real acceptance. It's conditional. Um, and they just continue cheering you on. And it's so easy to just like get your perception warped that way. Do you think that there is some sort of kind of social currency in that, in that kind of worldview where you're essentially kind of separating yourself further and further from like mainstream understandings like is that is that where the the praise is coming from that you that you're kind of distancing yourself more and more from what like cishet society? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think that it's there on like the political level where um, in the worldview, you know, it's like cis heteronormative post colonialist white society is like this evil horrible institution that's killing people and blah 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 blah, and then so what you want to do in response to that is to separate yourself. And in this particular worldview, a lot of that is done through identity and through language. And so you want to separate yourself from that, you know, cis heteronormative white hegemony or whatever they want to call it. Um, so there's that. But then I think there's also just the kind of normal teenage tendency to, for some teenagers, to want to be part of like an alternative group an alternative lifestyle. So I think there's that too. Um, and I just kind of, I remember feeling that way when I was in high school, when I, when I had to go to school and interact with the normies, I would just kind of cope with the fact that I wasn't fitting in by being like, oh, these idiots, they don't even understand that we live in a like cis hetero white patriarchy, blah, blah, blah. And that was just kind of my way of like, um, not having to really come to terms with the fact that I didn't have many friends or, um, that I wasn't fitting in with the normal people. Um, I think that's pretty normal for certain teenagers. Um, but there's definitely that at play too. Yeah, I did that as well. Like I kind of framed when I was a teenager, like had this kind of goth grunge identity and I, you know, used that to basically somehow mean that I was superior to the normies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's a pretty normal, uh, certainly for the odd nerdy teenagers to to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering if, if you attended one of those, the, like a school where a lot of this social justice and queer theory stuff is being taught, was that reinforced? The stuff that you're picking up online, was that being reinforced through the school? No, actually, I think I was a little bit before that. Um, and my school district, I think, not that it was conservative, but it was like a more Republican area. So that, that just, I don't think was a, a factor. Um, so yeah, I didn't see anything like that at school. If anything, I was kind of challenged at school. I remember um, there was a few kind of events that happened in the news where, you know, there's like the the kind of like leftist narrative or like the the 
I don't know what you call it. Um, but the, the, just that narrative that interprets everything through the lens of like social justice. And then there's, you know, the kind of more like normal people narrative. So I remember I had this English teacher who there was, um, if you remember like the Charlie Hebdo attack in like 2015, maybe. Um, and there's that. Oh, sorry, yeah, sorry, go on. Maybe even earlier than that. I don't really remember, but I just remember that um, the kind of like leftist, for lack of a better word, narrative was, you know, that almost, if I'm remembering it correctly, it was like, well, if they wouldn't have made that cartoon, then they wouldn't have been attacked for it. And that it was like, like the attackers were striking back against like racism and Islamophobia. And so I had this English teacher who he wrote something and he put it on like his door about how like, it was like, a, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was like a pretty like measured take. It was like, it was factoring in that kind of stuff. It was also factoring in like, you know, that it's, um, you know, free speech is important, freedom of expression and blah, blah, blah. We can't allow violence against people for expressing something that is offensive to another group of people, blah, blah, blah. But my, me and my, one of my only friends at the time, we just went rabid. We like attacked this guy. We were like, he's racist. We wrote like, we wrote stuff on post-it notes and put it on top of his thing that he wrote on his door, calling him racist and stuff. So I definitely feel like I and my small friend group who were all on Tumblr, super like social justice crazy. Um, we were very much alone in that. And that the rest of the school was not aware that any of that was happening. And now that would almost be like a New York Times level take, which you guys had. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now it's like very normal. And I think that in a lot of areas, just the average high school student would have agreed with us, um, which is pretty scary to me because I think that it's just, I think it's so much better to have an adolescence without that nonsense. I'm sad that I had an adolescence that was like so drenched in that. Um, and just to think that so many high schoolers are growing up in that now, it makes me sad. That's one thing that's been really eye-opening for me um, over this last couple of years, because I, I would always consider myself fairly leftist, moderate leftist. And I think what's eye-opening for me is it, it's almost like we have two completely separate parallel societies, depending on whether you're on the left or on the right, which is becoming more and more polarized and completely different media for each camp yeah. and so the information that we're receiving is really kind of dictated and tailored to yeah. which camp you're in and so it, it's so and in this activism you know we're, we're interacting with a lot of different kinds of people of, of different different political positions and it's almost creepy how people can live in a completely different universe with a completely different way of thinking and that's yeah and it, we call that echo chambers i guess right that yeah, but it's like even more than that because it's it's like there's there's like a different canon of how events took place depending on what side you're on. And it's so difficult because I have my interpretation of how various events took place. But I've noticed that like talking to someone who has the opposite uh, version of events it's like impossible to have a conversation because you were literally, it's almost like, you know, like 
the Berenstein Bears universe thing where it's like in one universe, it's Berenstein Bears. And then I don't know, if, have you heard of this? Yeah. And the other one is Berenstein Bears. And it's like just different things happen in different universes. That's how it feels right mm -hmm. now with just like perception of events that take place. And it's it's really crazy. It's very unhealthy. And on the left... And with with the social justice being what it is, the, the left, I think, is under the impression that unless you believe in a particular social justice model, you're therefore a bigot. Yeah. And I think what's been really eye-opening <clears throat> for me and, and helpful um, to hear from people on the right and how they would describe social justice, it's not that they don't agree that racism or discrimination happens, that they just have a different model of understanding oh, sure. it and and solving it, and yeah. that's been really helpful for me to learn, right? Because it because now half of the world isn't isn't frightening anymore, right? That that there are reasonable, <laughs> yeah. and re reasonable and intelligent people on both sides who just have a very different model of understanding um, the problem and and how to solve it. Yeah, I agree. And it is also interesting that we continue to like to talk about it in right and left in like this traditional political compass framework when it's really like what what we now call the left is very uh, quite illiberal and quite quite the opposite of what we kind of understood the left to be and what liberalism was um, understood to be. Um, so even using that 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 old like dichotomous language of left and right, it doesn't really it doesn't really reflect where things currently are um it's another thing to grapple with i i tweeted the other day that i think the real divide instead of right versus left is people who still um heed the institutions and respect the institutions so for example i know that um there's there's always kind of like the use of the word democracy not that i'm anti-democracy but like you know they'll say that like oh if you question certain narratives then you are anti-democracy or if you question certain narratives then you're anti-science or if you question mm -hmm. certain narratives then you are anti you know this or that institution um and then on the other hand or you know if you question certain narratives then you're anti-journalist um or you, you know, there. It's very be, childish thinking. Yeah, yeah, it really is. And another example is kind of how like the Washington Post um, has democracy dies in darkness, as if like they're kind of like the institution that is keeping the democracy from dying in darkness. Um, and a lot of people do fall for that. And people still, I think on the left, predominantly don't question the media and they don't question the government, which is very different from how it used to be. They don't mm -hmm. question the intelligence agencies. They don't question, um, they don't really understand what science is. Like they think science is just like, oh, these smart people find the truth and then they tell us the truth, which is not what science is. And then on the other hand, you have the people who almost by default don't trust an institution. If an institution is saying something, then that means that that by default needs to be questioned. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people who just, do not trust the media they don't trust the government they don't trust the science they don't trust any of the bureaucrats so i think that's more of the divide that we're seeing now because it's like you have a lot of people who are kind of on the the latter side where they don't trust the institutions where politically they're more traditionally left-wing 
But when you look at what camp they end up falling into, it ends up being kind of like the Republican kind of like they don't want to vote for Democrats, basically camp. Um, So I think that trust for the institutions has a lot more to do with how we where we fall politically right now than any actual political philosophical thing. Yeah, I don't think many people on the left realize how much our media is controlled and manipulated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's fairly new. I, mean, I honestly think w- w- this this is going to wake up the, the trans issue is going to wake a lot of people up out of their out of their blissful slumber of what's being uh, what's going on and what's being propagated by mainstream institutions. Um, you know, when the, when the chips fall on on the transition of, of children, like I don't I don't think that people will be um, you know blissfully complicit um, any longer. Sorry, I'm steering us back to the trans thing in, in inadvertently. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a good point. I think like the the trans issue is so interesting because I think it's one of those issues where you don't have to be like an educated, scientifically minded expert to understand why it's wrong to transition a child. I think that you can have just like the average person off the street with a intuition and a gut can know that that's not right. And that's going to really end up hurting a lot of these young people. Um, But we live in this moment where we're gaslit into not trusting our own eyes, not trusting our intuition. And at some point I think people are going to like, I'm, I'm not sure. Maybe there are two scenarios. One where people do end up thinking that it's, it goes too far, they trust their intuition, or another one where I think people can get into a kind of situation where they lie to themselves so much, and to admit the gravity of the lie that they've been telling themselves is so humiliating that mm-hmm. they just can't open their eyes to it until far after the fact. And I, I think so much, like, if we look at the parent of, of, of children who are being transitioned, um, it almost seems like we've got the two extremes of this just in the parents. Like, so the parents yeah. who are transitioning their children, like that, so so obviously like we've all had to grapple with our decision to transition and, and kind of face that head on and what, wherever we landed with that. Um, but, and it is humiliating, humiliating on certain levels that you fell for certain things along the way, but but imagine that perspective from from the parents who who are transitioning their children, who have allowed their teenage children to transition, and so they're going to fight tooth and nail to maintain this lie because they even have more uh, invested in it than the individuals who have transitioned themselves. And then on the flip yeah. side of that, the people fighting the hardest to wake everybody up to it are the parents who are resisting their children transitioning. Um, so I think I think in the parents we see the most extreme of of the current moment that's a good point good observation speaking of parents how did your parents respond to your identity when you were identifying as non-binary so they definitely weren't about it um i didn't tell them about any of the non-binary stuff i pretty much kept it to myself to my small group of friends and to tumblr until a few months before I turned 18 and went on testosterone. Um, So my parents weren't really in the loop on that. And then when I told them, uh, sorry, I just got a notification. It distracted me. Um, When I told them, it was kind of like, listen, I'm a trans boy. My name is 
trans name. I use he, him pronouns and I'm starting testosterone when I turn 18. So that just kind of off the bat, uh, started a conflict. Um, I think very understandably, cause I told my mom at first, I never really had like a direct conversation with my dad about it, but, um, I told my mom and yeah, very understandably she reacted, uh, pretty shocked. Um, she was not very like supportive, I guess. Uh, I don't know what I expect of her. I think her response was pretty reasonable. Um, but then like from that, from then on, it was just a little bit kind of like dysfunctional. Like I think, um, my relationship with my family just is a little bit dysfunctional. We were never close. Um, and so we just didn't talk about it for months and then talked about it again shortly before I turned 18, turned into a huge fight, like screaming match in the middle of Kroger, which is a grocery store for anyone who doesn't live in my area. Um, we have Fred Meyer over here, which sells Kroger products. So I think it's the same store. We just call it Fred yeah. Meyer over here. I think uh, really relevant I think, to the conversation. Yeah, I think Jewel <laughs> Osco in Chicago is also run by Kroger, but I'm not sure. Um, anyway, um, maybe even Publix. I'm not sure. There's a lot of stores that are owned by Kroger, but now I'm getting really distracted. Sorry, that was my sidetrack. <laughs> <laughs> um, where was I? Um, oh yeah. So then. Uh, didn't talk about it again until, um, well, no, like the night before I went and got testosterone, which my parents didn't know I was doing. Um, we had a conversation and I said, look, like we're moving me into school, like the, in three or four days, cause I was starting college. Um, and I've already told the school that I'm trans and that I'm a boy. And so they have me as all my boy information on in their information in their you know files. So it's going to be really awkward. And it's going to make you like look like an asshole if you don't call me a boy in front of all the people at school. So my mom was like, OK, fine, I'll call you a boy. And then we I, I got my testosterone. She didn't know about it. And then we I came back and then a few days later. Uh, we moved me into school and my mom ended up calling me she at some point, which obviously made me flip out. I was really upset. Um, and then maybe like a week later, we just got into like a massive fight and didn't talk for months afterwards. So my mom definitely um, didn't handle it well. I think that she was was right in being kind of shocked at first but i do think that the the conversations we had and the fights we had they took just like a really dark turn and i don't think that she treated me very nicely um so yeah that was a difficult time in my life and my dad was more just kind of like uninvolved he was like if you want to be called that whatever and he just kind of went along with it which I don't think either of them really handled it in a very loving way. And even after the fact, like we're not very close. So, yeah. I'd love to know you were... about your experience at the gender clinic. Oh yeah. Did they do an assessment or how, how did that work? Yeah. So I went to Planned Parenthood and they did 
So I talk to a social worker for maybe 20 minutes and I have in my, I went back after I detransitioned and I got my records from them. And so I, in, in this 20 minute social worker interview, she asked me maybe like 10 questions and I have all the questions and the notes she wrote down for each of my answers. Um, I actually have copies of that and it's just pretty crazy. Like they were pretty, they weren't very in-depth questions, uh, to put it mildly. It was just kind of like, you know, how long have you identified as trans? Why do you want to start hormones? And my answers were like, well, I've always been trans, but I only knew about it three years ago. I only found the words for it three years ago. And I want to start testosterone so that I can look more masculine. Like those are my answers and, uh, just really not very in-depth. And then she, said at the end of this short interview, she said she would go talk to the nurse practitioner and see if they would want to start me on testosterone. The nurse practitioner agreed. Um, but when they came back into the room to talk to me, they said that since I had come such a long way, because I drove from Ohio to Chicago, because there wasn't informed consent in my area. And I don't know. Sometimes I question myself and think like, did I just miss an informed consent clinic? Why did I drive all the way to Chicago? But I did. And uh, so she said that since I had driven such a long way and I seemed so sure that they wouldn't do any further assessment and they wouldn't take any blood work and they wouldn't have me drive back up for a follow-up, they would just give me my first injection at that very appointment. So yeah, there wasn't very much assessment um, and yeah. So you also had a really uh, interesting experience at that clinic because as I recall, you were telling uh, Sasha and Stella on general wider lens that you basically told them, oh, I've got big boobs and, and big hips and therefore I need extra testosterone. And yeah, they're like, oh yeah, totally. Much. That sounds legit. Literally like I shit you not. That is what happened. So yeah. Uh, Usually they start you off on like a dose, like from what I've heard from other uh, women who have been on testosterone, uh, usually 25 milligrams is kind of where you get started out. I've heard from a much smaller group of people that 50 milligrams is where you, where they started out, but usually like, you know, it's somewhere down there. And so I originally was getting prescribed 25 milligrams and this is a week. And I said, like, I expressed that I was concerned that it wasn't going to have any effect on me because I feel like I produce more estrogen because I have big hips, not even big hips, big thighs and big boobs, which is like crazy to me. Every time I tell this story, I'm like, what the, why did she listen to me? Like, you can look at me. I don't have abnormally large boobs or thighs. What the fuck? But yeah, basically she was just kind of like, Okay, so do you want to go up to like 50 milligrams? And I was like, mm, I might need it to be higher. And so she was like, okay, so where do you want to start at? And I was just like, what's, you know, what's the highest? And she said, usually we don't go over 100 milligrams. And then uh, so I was like, can we do that? And she agreed to it. And so that's what she prescribed me. Wow. I mean, just to put that. And I have the records and everything like, I could, yeah. I could and just to put that in perspective. Receipt. I'm on 65 every week. Yeah. I've been for years. So to start, yeah, it, I started on, on, 
I started at 25 and was on that for six years and have been on 50 for the last four. Um, it's interesting when you talk about the, the kind of mental turmoil, the emotional roller coaster that you went on, it makes yeah. a lot of sense when you realize how, just how much testosterone was flooded into your system. Um, yeah. With no, like, with no, like gradual buildup to it. It was just like, one day I had normal female levels of testosterone and the next day I was injecting a hundred milligrams into my flesh. It's likely, likely about 50 times what your body was used to somewhere between yeah. like 30 to 50 out of times. Yeah. Yeah. Super. Like, I feel like that woman probably subscribed to a kind of like, you know, just give, give trans people, whatever they want. They come in and they ask for a hundred milligrams of testosterone. Don't question anything. Don't think that this is an 18 year old girl. Don't just, just prescribe whatever they want, which I know some of these kind of like clinicians subscribe to that worldview, but yeah, super irresponsible. Wow. One thing that I've, I've, I've realized as well. So I kind of got wind of the social justice element um, and like kind of like transitioning to be trans uh, uh, process around 2017. You're saying that this, your, your experience of this was, and, and when I encountered that 2017, the people I encountered it from were already acting like I was a weirdo for not realizing that, of course, you transition to be trans. And of course, it's wrong to be cis. And so in 2017, it was already, I was already weird for not knowing that, right? So mm -hmm. it obviously been going on for at least a few years. So you're saying you encountered it around 2015. How long do you think, like, when you, you it sounds like you got into Tumblr around 2015, and this was already the main, mm -hmm. this was already the understanding? I started using Tumblr, uh, 2012. Um, and I started identifying as trans. This is always hard for me to think back to what years these were, but, um, I think I started identifying as trans when I, in 2013, if that's correct. When I was 15, I'm 23 now. I think that that was around 2013, 14, something like that. About a year okay. then, about a year on Tumblr before it, it had an impact like that on your identity. Yeah, yeah. I think the first year was a lot of just, you know, they, them pronouns and agender and kind of just like non-committal gender identities. But then the more like the, the gender identity started becoming a part of my personality and my identity, like I stopped seeing myself as like, a girl. I, I saw myself as like a trans person, like whatever my identity ended up being, as long as it was a trans person, that was correct. Um, so yeah, that ended up kind of crossing paths with my body image issues and my feeling of not fitting in. And I just became over time after about a year convinced that my problem is that I was that I'm a trans boy. And I, if I just had a more masculine body, then I could look like a man and I could fit in with boys somehow better than I do with girls. I don't know what my rationale was for that. There wasn't a lot of rationale, but yeah, that's what I thought. So it sounds like for you, you thought transitioning would, would solve a social problem for you. Yeah. Yeah. Social and body image. Like I, I literally thought like when I would picture myself, cause I would always kind of fantasize about the future. A lot of future fantasy was going on. Um, I would fantasize about, you know, walking down the streets of New York and I'm this like tall, lanky boy guy. 
which is like completely not my body type. I'm a little over five, three. I tend to be a little bit like, you know, on the curvy side, I don't have like an androgynous physique at all. So like, I, I just, I don't know what I was thinking that I thought that I would become like six foot tall and like lanky muscular, like shredded. Like, I really don't know what I was thinking, but that was kind of my like future fantasy that I would engage in all the time. So you think it had a lot I, to do with basically you're spending so much time online where you are just essentially whatever you want to project. And I think if you, when you're spending so much time uh, online, kind of disconnected from your physical reality, I think it's easy yeah. to, to kind of to start fantasizing a few about a future that's kind of along the same lines of whatever you're fantasizing about your kind of avatar being essentially. I, no, exactly. That's a hundred percent correct. Like completely disconnected from my body. I really hated my body. I just had, the worst like body image issues, eating disorder. I absolutely loathed my body. Um, I think that was my number one, just like mental health issue was like, I couldn't even like look people in the eye because I just hated how I looked so much. I would just hide myself. I wouldn't socialize. Um, so yeah, really hated my body, but then so disassociated from that body, like disowned that body and just started spending so much time online where I was thinking about and talking about fictional characters and actors and art of my favorite fictional characters, projecting myself onto fictional characters and looking at art of these fictional characters in this specific body type. I was really like into kind of like the tall, lanky, skinny guy body type. And so I think just years of that, just constantly looking at this imagery, constantly looking at this content, just rewired my brain to think that by the magic of transition and testosterone, I was going to become this like cute, lanky, skinny Tumblr boy. Which is not that hard to understand, if, especially since you are your kind of your brain and self-perception, you know, like that time of your life in adolescence, you know, yeah. like your latter ends of your teenage years, you're kind of, you know, forming a sense of self. And if that's happening in that confine, um, it makes, yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. You're not really forming a sense of self in the natural way where you're going mm -hmm. out and having experiences and you're learning things and you're, you know, taking risks and experiencing consequences. You're forming your identity through scrolling past images and ideas and posts all the time which can really fill your head with anything at the point where you ended up going to the clinic um you know if it weren't for the informed consent clinics if you had gone to a clinic that wasn't doing informed consent knowing your frame of mind at that point where you drove that distance to go to a clinic is there anything that I mean, it's hard to know for certain, but can you think of anything that a clinician could have done for you at that point that might have intercepted this process or just helped you even reflect on it differently? Man, I, know I always just, I always just think that the only thing that really would have helped me is to just have like a, a trusting, loving relationship with an adult. Cause I just didn't really have that. Um, and I think that what I needed was guidance and kind of like acceptance, but in a way that, you know, steers me in the right direction. Um, and I think that if, you know, if there was a clinician that could kind of approach me from a compassionate yet realistic 
point of view and really tried to like build a relationship with me, which is hard because I mean, these clinicians are seeing so many people and like, they're not my mom, you know, they're not my parents. So that's hard. But I think that maybe that would have helped if some clinician could have gotten me to trust them. Cause I think that's what I really needed was guidance and, and someone to trust. But other than that, I'm not sure if there's anything that someone could have said or a particular type of therapy that would have helped or anything like that. And it would have taken a long time because like, because like the, the, the culture that you were already inundated in tells you that the, the healthcare profession is, is just full of transphobes who are trying to stop you from accessing transition. And so you're already going into it thinking I have to get around this person who's going to try to get me to not do this and they're wrong and they're cis and they're a transphobe and I'm right. And it's like, it's like a moral crusade is essentially what I'm sorry. I'm not answering for you. I'm like, this is what I've kind of picked up and how people talk about this online is is like it is like a moral like a righteous crusade to to fight against anything that's kind of going to um put the brakes on transition i mean dude i found a video a while back maybe like over a year ago i might be able to still find it on my old laptop but it was a video i made that i posted on tumblr after my first testosterone appointment where I talked about how disgusting it was that they were gatekeeping me by making me talk to this social worker for 20 minutes. And I just go on and on about it. Like, this is what trans people have to face every day. They're scrutinizing my identity. They're, they're literally subjecting whether or not I exist to the whims of some cis hat white woman, like just going off about that. So it's like the fact that I was in that state of mind, like there's literally I think people, especially parents, kind of have this idea that it's like, oh, well, if I just find a therapist and send my kid to the therapist in three months, they'll be just like they were before again. And it's like, no, like these kids are really indoctrinated and it's not like a rational belief system. It's completely emotion based. And it's like there's so many layers to it that there's there's nothing that a clinician can do in the span of a few appointments that can help, especially if there is the alternative of informed consent where I just go in there and pay the money and they give me my hormones. And that narrative isn't new. I mean, that, that whole um, just suspicion and and distrust of any clinicians. I remember that being how people were talking in the community 20 years ago. And I mean, there's, there's some, right to it you know it's like if you really feel like this is what you need and it's you know it's part of your identity and it's almost like you you see it's like it's part of your soul like it's who you are and you have to go appeal to some stranger in a white coat who's going to judge you like I really understand that I think that there's um there's like a lot of reasons to be skeptical of of clinicians but I just think that the some like I definitely I just wasn't um I don't think my skepticism of a clinician was was based in any like true reality I think it was just like you said a moral crusade like I don't think they could have done anything other than I guess like roll like bring my hormones out on like a velvet pillow and like get on their knees and hand me the hormones anything short of that I think I would have deemed transphobic gatekeeping 
It, it, this particular social justice movement too is very skeptical of objective reality. Like it, it's very, yeah. the emphasis is on lived experience and the lived experience and the, the knowledge of oppressed people has priority over, over all else. And, you know, so, so the way this narrative goes is, you know, I know who I am as, as an individual more, and that information is more valuable and superior knowledge to anything the clinician knows, right? Be yeah. And, and we've taken that to such an extreme, well, I shouldn't say we, cause I don't think I've had a hand in that. And I don't think either of you have, but as a, as a culture, I guess is what I mean by we, um, is we've done that to such a degree that we've thrown all the science out the window and, and rather than, rather than building on the science that was happening in the eighties and nineties, we've just completely tossed that out. Yeah. Well, cause I think in this worldview, like they, they kind of see the clinicians as coming from this long-standing institution of cis-heteropatriarchy. Like it's like, that's literally a, re a representative of the cis-heteropatriarchy. And so they're going to have a lot of skepticism against that, especially since they feel like they have to appeal to this person. Cause if, you know, if you're one of these people, like truly you think that science and rationality and hierarchy, like all of this is like a product of this, you know, cis heteropatriarchy that you disdain. Um, so any clinician is, is going to, there's nothing they can do really. Like there's just so much mental protection against any clinician actually making a connection with that person, which isn't like entirely wrong. Like I know we talk about this worldview as if it's like completely crazy and, and it is, but I don't think it's entirely wrong. Cause I think, you know, people kind of pick up on the fact that a lot of the times when you go to a doctor or when you go to a therapist, they don't really help you especially in America, you give them a bunch of money and they don't really help you. I know if I've had that experience a lot. I'm sure many people have had that experience. Um, and so I think maybe this in a way is kind of a response to that where it's just like a, a very convoluted approach to explaining that. Like, why is this institution so ossified and so corrupted and so like not helpful to most people? And because we've devalued the professionals to such a degree that they're really just vending machines at this point of medication, yeah. right? That that, yeah. that we don't really value their their experience or the science mm -hmm. at all. There's so little help for yeah. people. Like it's like, okay, here's your hormones, and then you're just left to to your own devices to figure the yeah. rest out. And every trans person I've ever known has said that, right? That that it's yeah. like, yes, we got the hormones, we got what we wanted. But now we're having to negotiate our identity with the rest of the world. And that is very, very, very difficult. And um, then that and we don't often talk as a as a trans population about the trauma of transition. Yeah. Stressful, yeah. traumatizing. The things that I have seen, like bad surgical outcomes. When I was down in Texas for my surgery. Um, one of the trans guys who was in just a young guy, like in his twenties, he almost died. He almost bled to death on his, on his floor. It was another trans man that found him. So, I mean, these things are happening and we've just normalized this. This is just, yeah. we're so focused on yeah. the thing that we want and this belief that it's going to make our lives so much better. And for some people it, it does. So I'm not going to take that off the table, but it, the amount of trauma that we just normalize and yeah. don't even register as trauma. 
is unbelievable. Sorry, my cat. And I, I mean, I think part of that is a result of, like you said, like the professionals, like they're not, there's been a change from professionals in these fields, like these experts being true experts, like they were in the eighties and nineties and not just for gender medicine, for really everything in medicine, but gender medicine is the concrete example here. Um, where back in the eighties and nineties, like you had these clinicians, like, you know, Blanchard and Zucker, who they were true experts. They had experience and like just a true unique, uh, calling to the field. But now it's like, we've, you know, gotten rid of all of those people and we've completely disregarded the value that someone like that brings. And we've just made it, you know, like a vending machine, a transaction. And so the consequence of that is that you don't have involved, passionate, knowledgeable clinicians that are true experts coming into contact with this unique population that has very unique needs and concerns you just have these completely uneducated people who they're on like a moral high trip, um, thinking that they're doing this amazing thing by handing out hormones to everyone who walks through the door. And that really at, at the end of the day does a huge disservice to the people who are actually being treated because you can't get around it. Like it's a very unique population and, you know, just the, the act of transitioning, of being trans, of having, surgeries and going on, you know, cross-sex hormones, that presents really unique challenges that need expertise. Mm -hmm. And when we deprive people of that, these are the consequences. So that's another thing. It's like people call us transphobic and say that we hate trans people or that I hate trans people or whatever. And it's like, no, like, I think that people who transition deserve a lot better. Like nobody deserves what people are going through right now. It's just like, it's crazy to me that we've gotten rid of the people who are true experts and who actually care in favor of these trans randos. It's considered trans friendly to just to, to, to act like these interventions are completely mundane and yeah. not invasive at all that are perfectly yeah. healthy and normal and not a big deal. It's like you're not yeah. reconstructing genitals to, you know, cosmetically appear the opposite sex's genitals. Like we talk about it like it's Botox, like it's just like yeah. this routine thing. And that's so that's so detrimental to the people that it's supposed to be, you know, helping. Yeah, 100 percent. Like whether it's someone like me or it's someone who is not going to regret and try to reverse their transition. Like, I don't think that, you know, Ken Zucker or Ray Blanchard would have prescribed me hundred milligrams of testosterone, which made me go fucking insane and be in the psych ward twice. Like, I don't think that would have happened with someone who actually was an expert and who actually deeply cared about what they were doing. But then you have these people who they're not experts. They don't know what they're doing and they don't really care. They're in it for themselves, for their own sense of moral superiority. And then, they make these massive mistakes, like completely irresponsible mistakes, and it ends up really hurting people. So what was the off-ramp for you? How, how did you end up sort of finding yourself out of this? Yeah, so remember how I said I, that my life was like 90% fantasy when I was in high school, and I had this fantasy of, you know, like being this like handsome, lanky, tall guy walking through New York, puffing on a cigarette, very aesthetic. Um, and then when I actually did transition, that didn't happen. 
like none of the things I fantasized about that I knew were going to be my life. Once I started testosterone and transition, none of those things happened at all. It was just kind of like hell on earth, to be honest. Um, I became so much more dysfunctional and unhappy. Um, and I think like after, after about a year or so, I was just like, listen, like internally, I was just kind of like, what the fuck is this? I don't know if I'm allowed to curse, but I was just like, I do it all the time. Okay, cool, cool. I was like, what the fuck is this? Like, this is not what I paid for, basically. <laughs> like, I paid for being a cute boy and having an awesome life and this fantasy in my head. And that's not what I got. So just slowly, I was like, I started getting this feeling of like, I wish I didn't have to be trans. Mm-hmm. And I remember I was like writing on Reddit about this too, asking like, do any of you feel like you wish you weren't trans? And, you know, people be like, yeah, we feel that all the time. But, you know, that's just like the, you know, it's because society's transphobic. It's internalized like, transphobia. Okay. Yeah, internalized transphobia. And so I would just kind of do that. And then I would get talked, I would, I would get like rationalized back into it. And that kind of went on for a while. But then eventually like, I just really started missing like simple little things that I felt like I couldn't do as a trans man, like playing with makeup or um, wearing leggings. I was always trying to wear like men's loungewear and it just didn't fit my body. And I was like, fuck it. Like, I just want to wear leggings. But I was like, well, I can't wear leggings if I'm a man. Stupid. But yeah, so I just started having like just feelings like that. And then eventually um, the, the real turning point was that my ex we were in a relationship at the time but uh who was also a trans man at the time uh made a video for me that was like a montage of pictures of us from uh basically the beginning of our relationship which was like two days after i started testosterone so in the beginning of the video i look like me and then I can just see myself like slightly like changing, changing, like looking more unhappy, looking more sick, looking more like disheveled, looking just not like me developing like the little Justin Bieber mustache, Um, you know, and I was just looking at this kind of progression and I was like, oh my God, this is not what I wanted. What the fuck have I done to myself, to my life? And I like started putting that together with like, it's not just the fact that my appearance changed. It's like, I was supposed to have this amazing trans life. And instead I've gotten like psych hospitalizations and I feel like I'm crawling out of my skin all the time. And I feel like a complete fucking psycho. Yeah. And so that was just the moment that it like the, the realization, like finally concretely dawned on me that this was like a huge mistake. And following that was very, very difficult. I I felt like I ruined my life forever, which is like crazy to think about now because I'm fine now. But um, yeah, at the time I thought I was like the only person that this had ever happened to and that I was just uniquely stupid and crazy. Um, Yeah. I've heard that from people who, when the motivation was that social justice motivation and then they start to actually resemble the opposite sex especially if they happen to be happen to be white as well it's like now okay now I appear like a straight white cis dude 
how does that work with my social justice framework? So it actually is for some people, it, they don't realize that, that that, that transformation yeah. is going to happen. People are going to, are going to perceive you as the opposite sex at some point, not trans. So if yeah. the whole point was to be like a social justice warrior and be trans, that disappears after a certain point, once that, that physical ambiguity phase ends yeah. And they end up sometimes being, you know, a bald, pot belly, straight dude. And it, so I, I hear quite a few people over the years saying, well, that, that didn't really occur to me. And I want to appear more androgynous. So they end up going off testosterone for a while and then back on it. And they try to mm. try to just sort of um, skirt that line between appearing female or appearing male, because for them, the whole point was appearing trans, not appearing the opposite sex. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's very true. And, um, for me, I kind of, I still generally subscribe to the social justice worldview, but pretty much from the time that I started testosterone, I kind of got off the internet. I wasn't really using any social media, um, cause I was just too enveloped in the shit show that my life became to really be posting on social media. Um, and so I kind of like got disengaged from, the social justice worldview very slowly. So by the time I was kind of like really doubting my transition, um, I wasn't really thinking along political lines that much anymore. Mm. When I decided to detransition, the the political aspect kind of came back where it's like, um, I didn't want to just be a cishet girl. I needed to be non-binary first. Um, but yeah, I I don't think I ever passed well enough to kind of see like a a man and then feel bad about that um I passed in the sense that like if I wore the right clothes and did my hair the right way and carried myself the right way um people would generally like 90% of the time call me he um but it was such an act that I had to put on that it really didn't feel like I became a man. It felt like I'm trying so hard to look like a man, like nobody noticed that I'm not actually a man, that kind of thing. So I never really kind of identified with like, oh, I'm a, I, I fit in as a man now. So maybe that's why that wasn't really a thing for me. It's interesting, like when we have these conversations and obviously the three of us kind of uh, in the in the online gender critical realm and with the interacting with the the feminists and whatnot on this issue who are often under the impression that girls who transition are doing so to flee uh, male oppression and to basically uh, shrug off the um, you know everything that comes with like misogyny and whatnot and they're basically betraying the womanhood and and when really the opposite is is actually what's going on in in these girls minds is that they're basically further entrenching themselves into a victimhood identification that's almost like 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 the concept is you're almost like lowering lowering yourself below cis women because you're not thinking in this kind of male female uh, yeah. paradigm anymore it, it's a cis trans paradigm mm -hmm. and therefore if you're trans you are then lower than the cis women and mm -hmm. and this is something that a lot of the feminists don't understand when they're trying to combat this issue it's like you're, you're missing the very fundamental point that's happening yeah here. they don't understand that cis women are considered very privileged in these circles like that's not the oppressed group that's the oppressor yeah. group because you also have to realize that like 
this is mostly like girls talking. And so like, this is most of these communities are like almost all female. And so there, there's kind of like this competition, right. Of like, who can be the most oppressive? That's how you get your social status. And if you're all females, there can either be the cis females and everything else. So you don't want to be like the cis females. So yeah, cis females are, are considered very privileged, especially there's also the fact that they're considered privileged in comparison to trans women. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. trans women are obviously the most oppressed people who have ever lived on this earth. Like forget about anything else. Um, trans women are all basically Jesus being nailed mm-hmm. to the cross and it's because not and only awful. are they trans they're also lesbians imagine yeah. the bad luck it's yeah terrible. yeah they're trans and they're lesbians and yeah these cis women just won't let them in mm-hmm. and it's just causing murder and death mm-hmm. um so it's very horrible cis women are very horrible for this so yeah there's um i i, I can see how you would interpret that as like well there's so much negative messaging about cis women. So they want to escape that. I really understand that, but I don't think um, it's kind of the traditional like feminist idea of male, female. I don't think that a lot of girls, especially the straight ones, I think it might be different for lesbians, but especially the straight ones, I really don't think that they're coming at it from the point of view of I just don't, I feel like I have to be feminine and I don't feel like I can be masculine without facing consequences. So I'm going to escape that by being trans. I, I really don't think that that's, that's the mindset that most of them are, are going through. Yeah. And that's something that a lot of, again, the, the, the gender critics say is like, you know, it's okay to be gender nonconforming or it's okay to be gay without understanding that most of the people today seeking transition are actually quite gender conforming and are yeah. insecure and they're heterosexual and they're insecure about that because there's nothing worse than being cis and straight. And so they're, you know, transing the cis head away. And, yeah. um, and, and I think it's so important that, that people realize um, that, 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 that the, the point of transition is not to flee societal oppression, it's to gain societal oppression. And, and yeah. And I think, again, like this is where I have a lot of sympathy for some parents with this because it's like, um, I think sometimes they will face uh, some backlash from gender criticals when they talk about, you know, how anxious it makes them to see their daughters suddenly adopt like this more androgynous masculine presentation along with their gender identity. And, you know, sometimes feminists, like understandably, they'll be like, well, what's wrong with your daughter cutting her hair? She should be allowed to cut her hair. But it's like, she's not cutting her hair because that's how she feels like she wants to look just as a person in a vacuum. Like I wasn't cutting my hair because I didn't like having long hair. I cut my hair because I wanted to signify that I was trans. And so I think like parents pick up on this, obviously, because they've had their pretty gender conforming daughter their whole lives, not gender, like these concepts are so like oversimplified, (laughs) like they've had this daughter who never in her life has expressed like discomfort with being a girl has liked putting on dresses or whatever every now and then, like there's never been like a, a significant distress with these gendered um, appearances and roles. And now all of a sudden she's rejecting it all. And so I think parents pick up on the fact that like, okay, like 
this is not something 100% natural. And it's actually very unsettling that this drastic personality change has just occurred at the drop of a hat. So and it usually coincides with like depression and withdraw and like withdrawing yeah. from the family and yeah. Yeah, yeah being alone or online all the time. It's yeah. yeah. I almost think that like um it's I think for a lot of girls like it's less about the gender roles themselves and it's more about just like um assuaging different like psychological issues. Like for example, one thing that I think is pretty common is wanting to be more invisible. So not wanting to be feminine, not because you prefer masculine things, but because you don't want to be pretty. You don't want to stand out. You just kind of want to be invisible and avoid attention. Um, and not, not even like, you know, negative attention or harassment. Um, just like, you know, you don't want people seeing you walk into a room and think, Oh wow, she's pretty. You just want to be ignored. You want to um, neutralize think, yourself? Yeah, kind of neutralizing yourself or like there's all sorts of things that like this kind of like radical appearance change, like there's so many functions that that can serve in someone's life. I, I think that's a huge oversimplification to kind of look at it so literally that like, oh, this girl cut her hair and is wearing basketball shorts now. That's because she wants to look more masculine because she hates femininity. I think that's a huge oversimplification. I, um, cause I have four teenagers. I do, especially the girls, I monitor, um, their social media accounts quite closely. And there's a, there's a TikTok trend that was going around about a year or two ago. Maybe it's still going around, but it was a series of TikTok videos of prepubescent to, I guess some of them were teens, um, girls mostly, um, kind of unloading well inventing different mental health problems like it was like a competition between who has it the hardest right yeah so my dad does this and my mom does this and I've got you know OCD or you know and and most of it seemed to be completely fabricated and yeah and, but it's this competition of whose life is worse than than the other teenage girls it's very bizarre but it ties into what you're saying that the whole point is to be as low on the pecking order as possible because that has social currency these days because of how we're seeing social justice. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like tying in with that, something that Sasha Yad has talked about before is how a lot of these girls who end up being drawn to this kind of thing, whether it's gender identity or this kind of like mental illness stuff that you talked about, which I completely can corroborate that. Um, she's talked about how a lot of these girls, they seem to be like very um whatever the opposite of assertive is like very agreeable like people pleasing type of people where they don't they don't have kind of the strength to really say what they want to say or speak up and they they kind of feel like they're burdens or like they're not justified in getting any kind of attention for anything. And then, so I think one of the reasons that this like really calls to them is because you have this competition for who's the most justified in feeling the way that they do. So if this girl is depressed or something, she can't just say, well, I'm sad because of X, Y, Z. She has to justify it by saying, I'm sad because I'm oppressed and because I have DID and because my parents are abusive. And like, there's, yeah, I think there's just like a tendency of these girls who are really struggling with 
just being them their own selves in the world. Um, I think it's like, I think that needs to be developed as you grow up. I think that's pretty normal. And just as you experience the world, you develop your voice. Um, but this kind of like ideology, it just really, it, it becomes a crutch for that. It's like it and tells it, them it, it that toxic. they're not worthy of, of, you know, empathy or attention um, for, for, you know, who they already are, what they're yeah. actually struggling with. And so you have to up the ante so that, you know, you're being terribly yeah. abused or you've got such and such diagnoses. And that means that you're actually worthy of empathy and attention and love and support. And that is part of the reason why they flip out so hard when you question their identities, because to them, it's not you're not questioning the actual logic of why you identify as a boy or non-binary. You're questioning whether or not they deserve empathy. You're questioning whether or not they deserve to have a voice. Like it really, to them, it feels like you are invalidating their right to exist. Okay. Okay. So it's not just hyperbole. Yeah. To them. I mean, it is hyperbolic and it is exaggerated, but to them, the, the feeling, and I, I remember it myself too, the feeling of somebody questioning your identity, it strikes to the core of like all of your insecurities. And because you're developing this whole identity as this kind of like desperate bid to validate yourself in this social circle. And then when people outside of it, especially people who you want to be able to trust, like your parents, when they question that, then it just feels like they don't care about how you feel and they don't think you deserve empathy. Like it's very, when you make your, your, when you make being justified to have, to, to be empathized with and your right to speak and your, your goodness in the world, when you make all of those things conditional on the gender identity, when the gender identity is threatened, it therefore threatens all of those other things that are conditional upon the gender identity. That's interesting. That makes a lot of sense. It does make sense. And since we we talk about gender dysphoria a lot here, obviously on the podcast, where how does that fit into this whole uh, schema? Because as as I understand it, obviously now actually with a lot of what you just said, it makes perfect sense why people think it's bigoted or transphobic or hateful to suggest that gender dysphoria should be a prerequisite to transitioning because that again yeah. is basically saying your feelings don't matter, your yeah. identification doesn't. Is, is invalid. Um, was that I your think, experience with it? Yeah, yeah, totally. That's my experience. And I, I also think gender dysphoria kind of just becomes another mental illness that like is used to kind of like justify and validate. Um, I think that most, definitely myself, I don't think I experienced actual gender dysphoria. I think that I experienced body image issues. Sorry, my cat. Um, I think that I experienced body image issues colliding with all of these massive incentives to identify as trans. Um, and so I, you know, I had all these massive incentives. I was looking for any kind of justification or reasoning for why I could call myself trans. Um, and the fact that I really hated my body seemed like that's a pretty good reason. I'd like my logic at the time was oh, I don't actually hate my body because I don't like my thighs or I don't like my arms or anything like that. I hate my body because I was meant to be a boy. And if I transition, 
then I won't hate my body anymore. So that's the kind of gender dysphoria that I had, but I really don't think it was like a, it was nothing that the trans identity came before the gender dysphoria. It wasn't the gender dysphoria that led me to consider transition. It was trans identity. And then like two years later, I thought about transition. I, I honestly think that gender dysphoria is something that's ve- like whatever, however you're defining that, it's something that's very easy to kind of convince yourself that you, you know, it's, it's, it's like a, it's something that I, I honestly think would be very easy, easily, could easily result from just obsessive rumination on one's sex body. It, it almost seems yeah. like gender dysphoria is basically, a, you know, the logical end result of, of obsessing like that. Um, yeah. yeah. There's a metaphor. Especially for like, Sorry. That, uh, there's a metaphor that Jameson Green uses in his book, Becoming a Visible Man, where he just, at the time I thought it was so beautiful and poetic, but he describes, he describes the realization of um, your transness as walking through like a dark cave. I may get some of the details a little bit wrong, but I, rem- I remember it as sort of walking through a dark cave, having your way lit by one candle at a time until eventually you, you have this like grand realization, like, oh, I'm trans. And at the time, I remember thinking, yeah, that that really speaks to my experience of, of unpacking this and coming to this realization. But in hindsight, I think what that actually describes is ideological capture, mm-hmm. it, it's the process of being captured by, by the trans ideology more than it is realizing your true self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It almost even puts you in mind of tunnel vision, mm-hmm. like what he's describing. Mm-hmm. Do you, do either of you feel like you, when you were kind of, you know, in the process of um, interpreting yourselves as trans and decide, and which eventually would decide to, uh, which eventually would lead to transition, do you feel like you looked back and like kind of retroactively changed things that you had been through to kind of like fit that narrative? Like, so for example, like, Um, I don't know, for myself, I would always think that like, oh, if I had a memory about not wanting to wear a dress one day and my whole life, I've never really thought twice about it. I just didn't want to wear a dress that day. I would kind of retroactively interpret that as like, oh, well, I was actually like signaling that I'm I'm trans and I'm not a girl. Do do either of you feel like you've done that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because you, you kind of, you kind of look back and, and you look, you know, when, when you've commit, when you, when you've decided this is definitely what you want to do in the, in the direction you want to go, I think it's totally natural to kind of look back at your history and basically look for, look for, for things to kind of build up a foundation that supports where you currently are and what you've currently decided to do. Um, so yeah, I definitely did that. Yeah, for sure. I I think that's pretty common to the trans experience of rewriting your history to fit and looking for signs of dysphoria, but also, you know, when to whatever extent people in their mind try to really believe that they truly are the opposite sex. Um, I don't know how you would do that, you know, because human beings don't change sex. So I don't know how you have, what am I trying to say? Like a, like a really coherent self-identity of the other sex, unless you rewrite all of your history to really believe that you were always were the opposite sex. Because yeah. otherwise we have this very fractured 
kind of history and self-concept and depending on, you know, like if you don't want to be out to people and you just want to, to pass as the opposite sex, you have to go through your history and rewrite it all because you can't blurt out one day, Oh, when I was a little girl, blah, 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 blah. Right. So you have mm, to mm-hmm. really edit um, and rewrite all of your stories to fit the narrative that you always were the sex that you well, present as. What do you think about that? Because to me, and I'm willing to accept that like people are different than me, but to me, um, just imagining doing that, that feels like it would feel like an incredible amount of effort and almost be sad and kind of disrespectful to myself and my journey through life to kind of like go through and, and rewrite things like that to present a certain version of myself to other people. Um, how do you feel about that? Like stealth living like that? Sometimes it's a safety issue being stealth. Like I don't think walking through the world, kind of announcing that I'm trans everywhere I go would be helpful either because that would just, that creates a whole different kind of social awkwardness. Um, and there are certainly, I mean, I don't want to overinflate this idea that trans people are always safe and targets because I don't think that's, that's, that narrative is true, but there is real hatred and bigotry out there so that yeah. we be safe in every situation to be out but it does seem very similar in a lot of ways to when I was a closeted dyke and you know like mm. if you're at work and you don't want people to know that you're gay mm. that, and you're socializing and talk telling stories of you know everyone's talking telling stories about their spouses or their kids there is that the similar kind of editing of your story that has to happen in order to remain closeted and it is absolutely exhausting yeah. I didn't have too much. I, I haven't had that much experience with this just because there was only about, I'd, I'd say like four years of my life where I was stealth and I wasn't even entirely stealth because anybody who looked through my Facebook history for, you know, uh, a couple of years is going to know, you know, the, the truth of it. Um, and then at the same time, I also never had any like intimate friendships um, with anybody who didn't know my past. Like as soon as I was kind of getting, um, you know, becoming, uh, quite close to somebody, uh, I would, I would disclose that fact. And so it was never anything that, um, I mean, yeah, there are certain things that I, that I feel like I've edited even, even for my own personal interpretation of myself. And I've had to go back and undo that editing just for my own personal, uh, understanding of myself and my history. Um, but as far as, um, kind of, yeah, I've never, I, again, my, my experience of being stealth was quite, uh, quite short-lived and not even all that, um, intense, I guess. Interesting. It was, it was, it was, it was stealth light. I don't know. Yeah. I just remember when, when I was like, cause toward the end of my transition, there was like a short period of time where I was kind of like stealth ish, um, like at work, I guess. Cause I just worked at like a cookie shop. And I mean, I, I would like, you know, try to, if something came up, let's say I was talking to a customer or something, just like friendly banter or whatever, and something would come up, like, you know, from my childhood or something, like I had a story, I would edit it. Um, and I just remember always kind of feeling really sad about that. Mm-hmm. So that's why I ask. Well, it is a kind of self-violence, right? That, that you're denying and cutting off. I had a very um, difficult experience when I first, cause I, um, 
was a longtime dyke and and um and that was a, an important part of my identity for many years because I transitioned in my 30s so that was that's quite a few years like I started hanging out at dyke bars when I was 16 um mm. so that's quite a few years of identifying one way and then having to dismantle an identity and rebuild another one um even though there's not much about me that's changed other than my, you know, my, my appearance, I'm still the same person. So it wasn't like a complete new persona that I adopted, but it is still grieving the loss of one identity. And I had a really disturbing experience when I first started taking testosterone and a lot of the lesbians in my life didn't want me in their spaces anymore. So there was that social upheaval and, and grieving and loss and, I'm being afraid of what does this mean for my future and where will I belong? And, but the way that played out for me, you, you mentioned when you started taking testosterone, you ended up in uh, in the psych hospital and I didn't end up in a, in a psych hospital, but for a few days, I did have this very disturbing experience that I can only describe as like a sensation of standing over a pool of water, seeing the female version of me drowning in the water and thrashing about yeah. and saying, help me, help me. And I remember feeling like I was both being murdered and a murderer, right? Because it was a violence against a part of myself. And yeah. um, it's been really important. And fortunately that, you know, that episode only lasted a few, few days, but I sobbed in bed for like four days, just having that. And I don't know how to describe it other than, cause it wasn't in a vision. It wasn't like a psychotic episode. It was, but that was the sensation internally that I had of, of that I'm killing off a part of myself. And it's been really help healthy for me to, to reclaim that person, yeah. right. And integrate that and accept that I am female who masculinized because I had gender dysphoria and that is my reality and my narrative. And it's, and it's been, even though I go through about my life um, appearing male and, and have integrated into the world as, as male um, that still needs to, I think internally be my narrative. Cause I do think that's the most psychologically healthy way to, to understand it and, and, and go about it. Cause otherwise I think a person's, identity is always going to be kind of fractured and, and disintegrated. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And now I'm able to look back on old photos of myself. Like for many years, I couldn't look at photos of myself prior to mm -hmm. transition. And now I'm able to, and I'm able to kind of appreciate that person and, and care about that person and feel empathy for that person. Whereas before I just had to completely black it out. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's really interesting to me that like you were able to reintegrate that person and accept that person that you you had really shut out, um, but kind of like continue moving forward along the same trajectory. Whereas my experience of like, I guess, coming back into terms with the person that I had shut out, it required like a complete dismantling of everything that I had done to shut that person out and coming like really viscerally coming back into I guess that that body that I that that person had inhabited so that's just that's just I think that's so interesting like how different people can be I think mine was mine was similar to to Aaron what, what you experienced because yeah it's, maybe maybe it has to do with the amount of time and the amount of investment that that um that that both Aaron and I had in 
in in like transition and, and kind of living as male that it wouldn't that once we realized you know that that the gender stuff was nonsense and that transition you know whether or not it was a good idea or whether or not it was it was beneficial it's still like we are still the the people the person that we were um originally and then and then just kind of having this is kind of disjointed like what Aaron was saying about looking back at old photos and having um, like a sense of, of empathy for that person. And like, for me, it's almost like a sense of, of endearment. Like mm -hmm. I know I am still that person, but it also feels like, like there is a, a, a cavern of distance um, yeah. there. And, and so there is, there is some, some, not nostalgia. I'm not really sure how to, how to explain it, but I did also have that time a long time where I couldn't look at old photos of myself because, um, because it was, there's no better word or phrase than dysphoria triggering. Um, but, um, but now that doesn't exist. And I think it has to do with the fact that I have completely embraced the fact that I am female. I always will be female. I am still that exact same person. I do look different and my thoughts do work quite differently. Um, kind of how I view the world and myself is very different than how I remember thinking and feeling back then. And I think testosterone obviously has basically everything to do with that. Um, but I am still the same person and I don't feel like I have to, um, yeah, I don't feel like I have to uh, do anything to, to kind of reclaim that person or to, to yeah. because I just, it, I still am. That, you I mean, are it's, that it's person just evolved. Yeah, kind of yeah. To a to a new form, but it's still like the same person, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that that like acknowledging that evolution and enjoying that and accepting that evolution doesn't require shutting out the previous form. Right, right. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that I do I do feel much more comfortable presenting like this than I did then. Like it did, um, I did have quite debilitating gender dysphoria that was mm -hmm. relieved with transition. And so it's very difficult to, to regret that and to want to undo yeah. it and to re-embrace where I was before because I was so, I was so uncomfortable in, in such a profound way that I didn't even really understand until I wasn't uncomfortable anymore. And yeah. so it's, so it's difficult to, to, to kind of, you know, to, to, to kind of, have a, have a, have a nostalgia for that because I was so deeply uncomfortable. Um, but yeah, so it's, it's, yeah, it's a complicated relationship with the current, with the past and present, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's something I have trouble untangling too. Like it is the fact that I'm able to integrate that pre-transition self into myself again. Is that because, as you said, that, that transitioning helped the dysphoria enough that I'm not experiencing that dysphoria and therefore, I'm not triggered by, by embracing that old self, or is it just that enough years have passed that my mental health has improved and could I, could I have gotten here without transitioning? And I'll probably never know, right? Like, how do you know that? Right. Cause it's like, choose your own adventure game. Like I chose one path. I have no idea how things would have turned out had I chosen a different path. Ideally, yeah. people can get to the sense of integration and comfort without transitioning, but um, it did help my dysphoria. So we got deep, guys. Yeah, we did. Uh, I appreciate it, though. I, I really liked hearing about you guys's experiences just now. Likewise, I really appreciate you coming on and, and uh, opening up your own story.
Yeah. yeah. It's really, it's, it's so insightful to kind of understand what like the, the, the younger pro, I mean, I got into, I mean, I transitioned in 2010, 2011. And so there mm-hmm. was, it was like, I think it was the kickoff of that kind of, I mean, well, Aaron, you were saying that the, like the kind of political transition has existed for ages, but, um, but kind of just, just like the, the it almost seems like it's, it's been an, an exponential rise since about the 2011, 12, 13. Um, and then to where we are now, um, it's sounds like what Helena experienced like it's it's only gotten worse since yeah. what what you experienced, you know, five six years ago. So yeah, thank you very much for that. Uh, thank you guys. It was a really good conversation. Really enjoyed it. Me too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.